giving women the vote was not something that all abolitionists necessarily wanted. And um, that's always a bit of a surprise. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week marks the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote. In 1872, a woman tried to register to vote in Missouri. When she was turned away, she sued. Her case was ultimately argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, which unanimously rejected her claim. For women to win the right to vote, it would take a constitutional amendment to pass the House and Senate and be ratified by legislatures in three-fourths of the states. Thus began the effort to pass the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. The 19th Amendment was ratified a 100 years ago this week when Tennessee became the 36th state to approve it. Here to talk about the story of women's suffrage is Meg Mott, She's a professor of politics emerita at Marlborough College. Meg Mott, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me, David. So talk about key moments in the movement for women to gain the right to vote. Um, well, the first big moment was in 1848, a Seneca Falls convention there were abolitionists in the gathering, and there were some people who believed in women's rights. Probably the, and I say some, because um, giving women the vote was not something that all abolitionists necessarily wanted. And um, that's always a bit of a surprise. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, promotes something called the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions, in which in the same manner that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, she uses that same opening language of um, how uh, the, it is in the uh, rights of the people when they feel that a government is no longer just and serving their needs for them to declare their independence. And so she uses that same kind of language to um, say that women needed to be taken seriously because the government did not um, protect them in any way. She has her whole thing of laying out, I can't remember how many indictments she has against the United States government, but it's basic things such as uh, a married woman has no right to her labor, which of course, uh, uh, makes a, a comparison to slavery right away, that women worked, but when they earned wages, if they were married, the wages went to her husband. They could not um, sign a contract unless the husband signed. They could not sue unless the husband agreed to sue. So there were many things that she wanted Americans to know that women were living under that had certain analogies to the condition of slaves in the United States. And then the big line is that they have kept the franchise from us uh, against a Republican, a key principle of a Republican form of government, that it runs on the consent of the governed. Um, however, um, with women not being able to vote, that was their, her big push. Uh, Lucretia Mott, and my last name is Mott, my wife is the great, 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 great granddaughter of Lucretia Mott. So Lucretia Mott is at the convention. She hears this and she says, Lizzie, they, they make us look ridiculous. The, because she's a Quaker. And what she's talking about, you know, it's not that she is against voting rights 
for women, it's that she thinks that all political votes are worthless. Because if people go to the polls to vote, who are they voting for? They're either voting for slaveholders, she says, or they're voting for warriors. And so the, the, to get involved in the political arena for Lucretia Mott and for um, the abolitionists was uh, like William Lloyd Garrison, who said the Constitution is a covenant with uh, hell and agreement with death. Or maybe I have those two backwards, but that basically he burns his constitution at a certain point, the two years after the Seneca Falls Convention, because it's shot through with slavery. So this is when it starts. And this is when uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton makes a big call for voting. But a lot of people are thinking, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. We have a lot more work to do before women get the vote. So it starts uh, with two concerns. And then, of course, there's the reactionary concern, women shouldn't vote. But what I'm interested in is this tension within the suffrage movement, because it was very much aligned with the abolitionists and also later with the uh, Women's Christian Temperance Union. Hmm. So the battle for the vote then begins to move forward state by state. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might surprise people to know that the very first state to approve it was the state of Wyoming, now thought of as a kind of a conservative bastion, but it kind of came out swinging, saying uh, we would, something to the effect of uh, the legislature that, uh, you know, it, we would rather not be a state if women don't have the right to vote. It was something along those lines. Yeah. How, why is it that, uh, and, and really the East was late to the party here. Right. Why is it that this really began as a Western uh, movement? Well, if you think of you're you're starting a new state, which means in order to be a state, you need a population. And if you um, want to have a population, that means you need women in order to reproduce. So those Western states, initially, they had lots of men and very few women. Uh, men were going out there to homestead, to try and grab land, to involve in uh, putting down um, Native people's efforts to save their land. So there was reasons that men were going west. And so the states figured out, okay, we know what we'll do. The way we'll go from being a territory to a full-fledged state is we'll just make it possible for women to vote. There's a whole bunch of states out there, uh, not just Wyoming, I think Montana, Utah maybe another one, but these states that were trying to attract women so they could grow a population and then they would have um, uh, more of a, you know, seats in Congress in terms of you want to build your population because the representation in the House of Representatives is determined by population. Um, Yeah, so it looked like, okay, it'll start out west and then it'll go east, but it didn't actually go that way. So talk about one of the tensions in the women's suffrage movement was that uh, for black women who found themselves fighting on two fronts as women and as African-Americans, and many women's suffrage organizations were segregated and worked only for white women's right to vote. So walk us through that story of the split, uh, the racial split within the suffrage movement. Um, yeah, and that this is a, a complicated question because depending on 
what time in history and whether the focus is on suffrage or as I mentioned, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And many of these same leaders were involved in this. Um, so one way that can be helpful to think about it is the temperance movement was operating on very much a local and grassroots level. They were listening to women who were talking about how their husbands were drinking, all the money was going to the bar. And um, so they were doing a community organizing. And what was it that was going to be necessary for women and children to flourish? So I say flourish as opposed to getting a right, uh, particularly getting a right as a constitutional amendment. So those two um, trajectories have different racial um, uh, backup, or, or, or they, they operate with uh, on a different levels, and therefore the national levels that were speaking more about rights and moving towards this big, big lift to get a constitutional amendment, that group was uh, predominantly white and understood what they were trying to do, especially after the 15th Amendment, is to get what they wanted in the 15th Amendment and that was not given to them. So some of this, you know, we can talk about it like there's obviously there's going to be racism and there's going to be people who claim to be abolitionists who don't actually want to work with African-Americans. So I, I don't want to Just to cut in, explain what the 15th Amendment did. So the 15th Amendment passes after the Civil War. It's the last of three Reconstruction Amendments. The first one, the 13th, abolishes slavery. The Second Amendment, the 14th Amendment, uh, it was proposed in 1866. It was ratified in 1868, and it um, allows for all citizens of the United States. Some of these things that we really take for granted now, the right to due process, the um, equal protection under the law, all of that language shows up in the 14th Amendment. And then in the second part of the 14th Amendment, they introduced the word male for the very first time in the U.S. Constitution. It had been that when you're trying to uh, figure out how many representatives you have in Congress, it just said, um, based on the population, but they started to talk about male, male voters, males over the age of 21. And the women who were involved in this, and that's not just white women, it was also black women, begin to wonder, okay, what's going on here? This is supposed to be a time of great expansion, but instead, women start seeing themselves cut out. And then the 15th Amendment uh, is what devastated many, many people. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, before the 15th Amendment, which, um, and I'm looking for, I thought I had a constitution down here, but I gave a talk last night. And so um, all my important documents here, I always have a constitution nearby. So the 15th Amendment, which is going to sound just like the 19th Amendment, passes, and it's pretty much a, a sword through the heart of these suffrages. So section one of the 15th Amendment, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And all the suffragists who were working with the abolitionists, in fact, they inhabited the same body, were under the impression that underneath this, you know, this movement for democracy, they just put in three letters, S-E-X. 
So when the 15th Amendment is passed without S-E-X, sex, in there, um, and abolitionists said, like Wendell Phillips said, oh, one, one group at a time, basically. This is the hour of the Negro, is what he said. Women, you need to wait. And for African-American women, I think their loyalties, and it makes complete sense, are going to be, finally, we have some group, part of our community, who can vote. For white women, it felt like, whoa, this is not what we had in mind whatsoever. So just to be clear, the 15th Amendment gives black men the right to vote uh, right. in the Constitution for the first time. Yeah. So um, the battle is joined uh, at this point. Um, we have given black men, but not black women, the right to vote. Yeah. Um, take us into the 20th century. So we've we've started at Seneca Falls in 1848 uh, with the idea of women's suffrage. It gets beaten back at the Supreme Court. And now we're into the 20th century, and there is an effort to ratify the 19th Amendment. What happens when the uh, suffragists hit the road? Uh, well, we have two groups. Again, we have one who's working on the national level, and we have another group that's working on the state level. And there's some tension between these two ways of doing it. Because if you're working on the national level and you need ratification, that means you need to go and convince 36 states, as you said, to vote uh, for the 19th Amendment. And, when, and that meant some of these states that were not happy about the 15th Amendment. So when, um, this is what I've read in Alexander Keeser's The Right to Vote, that when Alice Paul, a white suffragist, and she's on the national level, she is trying to figure out how can we actually get a constitution, constitutional amendment. Um, when she goes down to the South, and people are saying, no, the leaders of these Southern states, we don't want women to have the vote. That's going to double what happened under the 15th Amendment. And she tells them, look, it's not going to change white supremacy. You don't have to worry. And, um, and she, it's not that I, I do not think that Alice Paul was in favor of white supremacy, but this is what national politics requires. If you want all those states to ratify it, well, many of the states did not ratify the 19th Amendment, uh, but Tennessee was the 36th state, not Vermont. Vermont did not think this was a great idea. Maybe it had to do with the 18th Amendment and prohibition, and the governor did not like the prohibition amendment, and the women's movement was very tied in with the temperance movement. So maybe that's why Vermont did it. But uh, I think that the thing I always want to stress is if you're going to go do national politics, you need to make arguments to persuade a majority of voters or legislators, depending on what your convention looks like, um, that this constitutional amendment is a good idea, which means you may say things that nowadays seem horrible. States level, they kept being able to work on this grassroots level. So you have an interesting thing going on as the 19th Amendment, they're trying to get ratification state by state. Certain states are making it legal for women to vote. America is sort of cracking up. Some right. states women can vote and some states women can't vote. Right. Montana, the very first woman to serve in Congress, I think her name was Jeanette Rankin, 
was from Montana. She's voted, she, you know, she votes, and she was voted into office. And that happened prior to the 19th Amendment. Hmm. So could have kept going like that, state by state. But yeah, it was this campaign for the big one. So um, let's talk for a minute about the so-called antis, the women who opposed suffrage. Um, and in reading about this, uh, it was describing that uh, men, a group of antis got caught up in the first Red Scare in 1918. The women's protest um, dedicated itself to, quote, uh, they organized themselves as the woman patriot and uh, dedicated themselves to, quote, the defense of womanhood, motherhood, the family, and the state against suffragism, feminism, and socialism. Um, I have to say that rally in Christ sounds like it could have been written today, uh, given the politics that we have now. Uh, so who are the antis? Um, well, I mean, I think what the antis are saying and obviously it was women who were making these comments. It was also men who were making these comments. Um, at this time in the United States, there was a sense that the family could be displaced. And I'll be very specific. The bourgeois family of its private sphere away from the hustle and bustle of either the market or the public sphere, that there was going to be this place where people could actually be moral because God knows that politics and the market were immoral places. People worked hard to win, not to do something ennobling. So um, there's been a strong tradition in the United States that the home was going to be the place where we could be moral, privately moral, and publicly out to get whatever we could. And, and that was a way to deal with the... Um, uh, cognitive dissonance of being a country that was supposedly in order to be for freedom and liberty and all these great values in the Declaration of Independence or in the preamble to the Constitution. But the way actually life was playing out, we couldn't meet those ideals. And so the family, the bourgeois family, became the place to attain them. So we have women and men saying, don't mess with the family. This is where we get to be moral actors. But you and then you have women saying, spectacle no, of, of women fighting against their own rights. And what? I'm sorry. It's, that it's the spectacle of women fighting against their own rights. Well, as if you think that rights are just on the level of um, political rights or civil rights. That these women, I'm going to say, I don't think, I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt and believe that all arguments have something good inside them. I think these women, like Lucretia Mott, was saying, don't get into politics, you will lose your moral status. Can you say something about the role of LGBTQ women? Some of the leaders of the suffrage movement, including Susan B. Anthony, um, were known to have relationships with women. It's not a story that has been told in great depth. What can you tell us about that? Um, well, I push back on some of these labels, like uh, to use post-Stonewall, the, the Stonewall March when gays in, in New York City were, had had it with police brutality and there was um, a great protest that rose up. 
and there was within the queer community at that time a sense of um, wanting to be more than just trash in society. But I I haven't found anything, and I and I um, I don't know. I I am somebody who. I, I myself am a lesbian, came out in my 30s, was very involved in the 90s, militant lesbian movement. And I kept noticing how when a group wants to feel good about itself, it oftentimes go back in history and says, okay, now we're going to liberate people from the past. I love doing political theory and going back in time because I have to challenge the current categories of the moment. So I know this is a long-winded answer, but if uh, Jane Addams is another um, person in this group who had very strong, intimate relationships with women. And I understand those women of the late, um, in, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s who had such a paucity of options in their life and who did not want, I'm going to use the word bourgeois because Marx is alive now. Marx is, is, is um, getting into people's thinking. All the immigrants who are coming from Eastern Europe, many of them are socialists. And, and I think this generation of women began to look for something beyond the bourgeois family. That's how I understand it. Mm -hmm. And now we would want to talk about it in terms of identity politics. I think they were more, they weren't interested in recognition. Nowadays, identity politics is a politics of recognition. That's fine. But what they were more interested in I think was redistribution and thinking about how to reimagine society so that there is less of this terrible uh, wealth inequality and uh, to come up with ways of being in the world that didn't restrict you to the domestic sphere and um, needing to be good there and, and supporting a very corrupt political and economic structure. Finally, I wonder if you could, we are still here in 2020 fighting over the right to vote. Uh, it is very central to the political moment we are in right now. What do you think that people fighting for voting rights today could learn from the suffragettes? Mm, that's a good question. Um, well, it takes a long time. Um, so I, I gave a talk last night at the next stage in Putney. It was very COVID. We had a little few people in the audience wearing masks and then it was live streamed. And I entitled it um, Perseverance, Patience and Politics. So if, if, and I think for right now, voter suppression, that's why I think the 15th amendment is still very much a, an amendment that needs protection. Um, the uh, Supreme Court in the Shelby County versus Holder 2013 decision eviscerated part of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, uh, voting, sorry, Voting Rights Act. And so if you're wanting to protect votes now, that decision would be a good one to look at because the court doesn't blanket say, no, 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 you can't uh, protect the 15th Amendment. They didn't like something that Congress had, had done which to be in all honesty, in all honesty, Congress had not been staying on top of the Voting Rights Act and providing the data that was necessary so that um, they could justify having this pre-clearance part of it. So one thing I do is 
find out the facts, find out what the law is, look at how different counties are handling it. So that's the hardest part about voting. Just like thinking about police reform, this is not centralized. It's, it's very much on the state and county level. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Meg Mott, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Meg Mott is a professor of politics emerita at Marlboro College. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all Vermont Conversations at vtdigger.org. Tune in next week for another Vermont Conversation.